Hello, everyone. My name is Ian Rowe. And I'm Nike Fajors. And welcome to The Invisible Men, where we make the achievements of incredible men invisible no more. Good afternoon, and welcome to the latest episode of The Invisible Men. Uh, my name is Ian Rowe, from a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Nike Fajors, uh, a member of the Leadership Network at AEI. And we're very excited, you know, in The Invisible Men is all about uh, making men that you may not have, uh, you may not know, uh, invisible no more, because they have done amazing things. And in our society today, we want to uplift black excellence, examples of people who are adopting the principles of free enterprise, family, hard work to do amazing things. And we are very excited today to have as our guest, uh, Ralph Clark, who Nike and I have known for, uh, oh, we won't say, we won't say, we won't say, we won't say how long, right? <laughs> <laughs> a minute. Yeah, a minute, a minute. Uh, but to suffice it to say that uh, Ralph is an extraordinary individual and we wanted an opportunity for Ralph for you to tell us a little bit about who you are and the organization that you have uh, shaped uh, over the last years. It's having a huge impact in our society today. Well, thank you for that, Ian. I'm, I've been looking forward uh, to seeing you guys. It's uh, like we said, it's uh, been uh, more than a minute, I guess, since uh, we connected. And um, thank you very much for having me on your uh, podcast. Uh, really appreciate it. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll keep my, I hate talking about myself, but um, so I'll keep it relatively uh, brief. Uh, born and raised in Oakland, California. Um, uh, went to University of the Pacific, uh, got a degree in economics, and then went on to uh, work at IBM in the early 80s, which was a really interesting time to work at IBM. I was a uh, sales representative for what was then called the data processing division, which we sold the large uh, mainframes that were in these things called data centers, which uh, no one knows yeah. what they are uh, these days. And then um, uh, got lucky enough to be accepted uh, to and attend Harvard Business School, which is where the three of us uh, met. And then right out of business school, uh, went to uh, work on Wall Street with uh, Goldman Sachs and then Merrill Lynch. And the idea for me was always to kind of get back to the West Coast, uh, where I was born and raised and uh, become a serial entrepreneur. And so I've been uh, doing that now since the uh, kind of late 90s and currently I'm the president and CEO of a company called ShotSpotter, which provides an acoustic gunshot detection uh, service that uh, police departments use to be more responsive to incidents of ongoing gunfire, particularly in those communities where gunfire is somewhat persistent and unfortunately has become normalized and oftentimes doesn't get the appropriate response from law enforcement. Um, uh, police departments tend to like to respond to homicides, I, I would say, or investigate homicides. And our firm belief is that just understanding that the vast majority of gun violence goes unreported and uh, therefore doesn't elicit response, that there's a lot of power in uh, responding to these incidents that kind of create a bit of a preventive or deterrent model. And our saying is that, you know, if you want to prevent next week's homicide, investigate today's shooting. Because the other thing is that we've learned uh, over the years with our work is the vast majority of gun violence that's perpetrating these communities is actually perpetrated by very, very few individuals. This is not an issue of kind of wholesale communities engaged in violent behavior. This is literally just a few handful of individuals 
that uh, kind of create this uh, problem uh, in our most at-risk underserved communities. And that's the thing that we're trying to help address with our work and our technology. Wow. How did you come up with this idea? Um, so I didn't come up with the idea. Uh, the idea was uh, developed by our original founder 20 years ago. His name is Dr. Bob Schoen. He's a brilliant mathematician and engineer, and he had been doing some work at Stanford Research Institute. He's, he's known as the father of epicenter of things, so using uh, very sophisticated math um, processes to determine the epicenters of earthquakes, Soviet Union missile testing, and the like. In addition to being quite a brilliant engineer and mathematician, uh, he's also an incredibly beautiful human being that became aware of a local gun violence issue in a neighboring uh, community in Silicon Valley and thought that he could apply these same kind of math principles to be able to detect, locate, and alert on incidents of outdoor gunfire. So the way our system works, um, just to describe it briefly for your viewers, is uh, we'll deploy sensors across a coverage area, and these sensors are spread out from one another, and they're designed to basically ignore ambient noise. But when they detect or sense a pop, boom, or bang, they'll timestamp that pop, boom, or bang. And because of the relative locations of each of these sensors, they'll have different timestamps. And it's those timestamps, those different differentiated timestamps, allow us to do uh, this time of arrival analysis and using math like intersecting hyperboli and the like to basically um, pinpoint that exact location of that pop, boom, or bang. We then go through a couple classification steps to ensure that the things that we alert on are in fact gunfire versus other pops, booms, and bangs. And the whole process uh, takes place within 30 to 45 seconds of the trigger pull from trigger pull basically to the alert showing up in a, a patrol officer's car on their handheld device and the like. And again, what makes it such a game changer is again, 80 to 90% of uh, gun violence goes unreported. It's become so normalized, sadly, in some of these communities, people don't call for a lot of legitimate reasons. I mean, you know, one is like recognition. I'm not sure exactly it's a gunshot. Um, you know, another one, R, is retribution. There's concern that, you know, hey, I don't want to be a snitch. If I call, you know, someone might uh, uh, try to uh, harm me in a way. That's a very real uh, situation. Um, there, the other one is, hey, someone else will call, right? It's uh, someone, someone else will call. I'm not sure. And so all those things kind of together um, allow it to become normalized uh, to the point where no one calls. Uh, or again, less than you know, 20% of the time, less than 10% of the time, um, people uh, call, which means there's no response. And I think criminals know this, violent criminals know this, of course, so there's not much of a deterrent for them to um, stop that activity. And it's really frustrating because, again, it's very few individuals that are holding whole communities uh, basically hostage. Um, and that's the thing that we want to uh, break. And when we can break that, a lot of it has to do with, I think, how uh, community perceives police. And when they don't see the police response to incidents of gunfire, but they do see police response for all manner of, you know, I call them nonsensical things, you know, giving people tickets for, you know, busted, you know, tail lights or, you know, uh, unregistered cars or, or the like, or, you know, actually arresting kids that are smoking marijuana, but in the same thing, you know, three miles away in the more affluent suburbs or communities, right. you know, kids are giving full on beer bashes or whatever. Those, right. those kids aren't getting arrested. They're getting celebrated in film. Uh, you know, I think a risky business. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is the, the dichotomy is just, um, it's not lost to um, these individuals that uh, grew up where I grew up in East Oakland to kind of know that it, it creates a very cynical environment. And when you have 
uh, community that is feeling cynical about police, you can't have public safety outcomes. Police can't be effective in doing what they should be doing, which is serving and protecting. Um, we're very much into the guardian model of policing or law enforcement as opposed to the enforcer uh, model. Um, that's, that's the thing we're trying to, trying to uh, reverse. I'll tell you what, you, you've delivered, I think I counted six best practices in about uh, 60 seconds, which uh, hopefully our audience appreciates. I'll, you know, one comment you made really resonated in the fact that it's very few people committing these, these very violent acts. And I've, you know, I've often said to my son, listen, it's, it's a handful of folks living in their mother's basement you know, not working, mama's not watching them. And these are the folks that are terrorizing a community. It, it's, of course, mine's anecdotal and, and sloppy, but your, your analysis and your insight to that point is, is really very powerful. And I, you know, that guardianship model. So you know, there's a lot of talk nowadays about uh, what training, you know, police officers need to be more effective. And you, you reference this, this guardianship model or guardian model Tell us more about that. And, and is, there, is there an extension of your work that leads to training or retraining of, of, of officers? Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you asked that question because um, as keen as we are being a um, technology company kind of based in Silicon Valley, we're super proud of the technology. It's very sophisticated. It has 34 plus patents associated yeah. with it. Uh, a lot of our work really has to do around um, after we apply the technology, really leaning in with our agency partners around implementing best practices. So we have a full on customer success organization. And our view is that if the technology is not being used the appropriate way, it produces little value. You have a very uh, interesting, sophisticated system that's telling you about gunfire. But if you're not really uh, repivoting yourself, re-engineering yourself from a process point of view, in responding to and investigating these incidents and really kind of showing up one of the best practices, for example, we uh, highly recommend is, you know, after officers get on scene, we're asking officers to get out of their cars, which doesn't happen today uh, with incidents of gunfire, because typically on a 911 call, the very few times they do receive it, uh, the modus operandi appropriately is to drive around because you don't have an exact location to go to. Uh, because of our, our technology, we're, we're very precision-oriented. So we're, we like the notion of getting cops the dots. Uh, we're typically within 10 to 15 feet of, a, of where the gunfire happens. So we're, we're asking officers to get there quickly, get out of their cars, get to the dot. If they're not encountering a perpetrator or aiding a victim, which happens sometimes, uh, looking for physical forensic evidence, being able to interview witnesses that are on scene if you're getting there, within, you know, say two to three minutes versus never, because you never get the call, you can kind of engage the community that way. And then after things settle down, we ask people to go knock on some doors and say something to the effect of, hey, my name is Officer Clark and I'm here because I got a shot spotter activation. I just wanted to check in to see if you're okay. Um, because that's exactly the way police would respond if a gunshot was fired in an affluent neighborhood. They're, they're gonna, hey, are you okay? We're concerned for you, we're okay. And I think, what we find is that, um, you know, maybe the first 30 or 60 days that that takes place, people are really skeptical. It's like, why are you asking me if I'm okay? I'm not used to seeing police being concerned about my welfare. But like when you start really kind of taking that approach, um, the community sees it and they're your most effective resource to prevent and reduce violent crime and other crime as well. It's like you, police can only be effective if they have the will and trust of the people. 
And if they don't have the if they don't have the goodwill, excuse me, and the trust of the people, their occupation occupations are super expensive. They're not particularly safe for the people engaged in the occupation, and um, they're not very effective. And that's the thing that we're uh, trying to change. And that, that's why, um, and you haven't asked the question, so maybe I'll ask the question myself because I want to give the answer <laughs> about the whole uh, defund the police issue. And I think I've been on a couple panels and people ask me about defund the police. And I think they expect me to say that I'm, you know, I really have a negative reaction to that. And, you know, honestly, I have a really positive reaction to that because despite the very aggressive tone of quote unquote defund the police, um, uh, which scares people, um, it's bringing a lot of energy <laughs> to this discussion. And the benefit of having that energy brought to the discussion is you're, they're basically kicking down the door and getting in the room where it happens, the room where it happens because of this energy of defund the police. And mostly what happens is when people get in the room, they're not literally calling for defund the police or abolish policing. They're calling for reimagining, reengineering policing reprioritizing what they are doing when they're doing it in their communities. They want to have a voice and say in how policing gets done. This is incredibly important, incredibly powerful. And yes, it kind of makes a little few people a little bit uneasy. A lot of my clients, in fact, I don't know that most chiefs of police really like the, the term or movement defund the police, but I think it's going to make I think it's going to make them better. It's going to make them safer. It's going to make them more effective. It's going to make uh, communities more effective. And there just has to be this recognition that certain amount of power is going to have to be ceded to community because right. communities help co-produce public safety outcomes. Public safety outcomes are not the 100% purview of a police department. They can't be, they can't be held accountable 100% for public safety outcomes. It has to be that those public safety outcomes are co-produced with the cooperation and trust of the people to help them do their jobs. Yeah, I mean, Ralph, this is fascinating. I mean, one thing I find very interesting about what you're doing, it's a, it's a predictive system in some ways. A few years ago, I think in Chicago, the police adopted a system where they tracked individuals based on their engagement in violent behavior. And so you develop these profiles based on individuals to predict potential negative behavior. But what you're doing is actually you're basing everything on the actual uh, event. the actual event, which is a yeah. which is a much more powerful, not dehumanizing uh, technology and applications. So that's that's very fascinating. Yeah, and I think we we do have a technology um, that is uh, it would used to be described as predictive policing. We we don't like that term. We like the term more around precision policing and really abstracting out personal identification things because that cuts against the grain. I think of developing community trust and like profiling and stuff. We're not interested in that. You have like these feedback loops and the like that can you know really create. I think. Uh, you know, I have this term that I call kind of over-policing and underserving, right? As, and that's the thing that we have to change where communities are saying, hey, look, the pushback around defund the police is really like, I don't want to be over-policed and underserved at the same time. I want to be served first, right? And I I even push back on the notion of the, the terminology community policing. I, I, I don't care for it personally because I only hear community policing applied to at-risk underserved communities. I never hear about them talking about community policing of affluent neighborhoods. Um, and at the end of the day, communities do not need to be policed. Criminals need to be policed. 
communities need to be served. Communities need to be protected. So let's stop talking about community policing because I think it's doing what they're trying to do a disservice. It's got the wrong words matter, I think. And I think it just sends the wrong signal when you say, oh, I've got community policing, like that's supposed to be a good thing. In my view, again, where I grew up, East Oakland, community policing is not a good thing. It's like, well, why, why do you feel like you have to police me? Um, you should be, you're my servant. You're my protector. You're my guardian. You're not my policeman. I don't, I don't need you to police me. Um, and it just kind of harkens back to the, I think, some of the original stains of police. And I think we're all familiar with is around slave catching patrols and the like. It just is kind of doubling down on that notion, from my humble opinion. But I'm very much, I want to have to acknowledge, I'm very much in the minority on that. So uh, full stop. I think our, our viewers and, and listeners would benefit mightily also to learn about young Ralph growing up in, in East Oakland and, and who were the people and what were the values that, that you embraced that, that brought you to, to this place today? So I was raised um, in a uh, single female head of household um, along with my sister for a number of years before um, my mother uh, met and married my stepfather. I think I was about 10, 11 years old by the time that it happened. And um, uh, so my mother's been obviously a very important uh, factor in my development, but almost equal to that, I would say. Um, and I don't know if it's by design or by accident. Um, maybe she was super concerned about me or whatever. But one of the things that she did smartly as a very young uh, mother um, of a uh, young African-American uh, male was she made sure I got to a great school. And for us in East Oakland and a lot of other communities, that school in the, uh, would have been, I'm gonna date myself now, but in the 60s, uh, a lot of those schools were Catholic schools. They just had a really interesting model where um, they could provide quality education, um, just not um, book education, but I think moral education as well at very low cost. And, and maybe it's because they had subsidized teachers in the form of priests and nuns and the like, so they didn't have to pay them union wages and the like. Um, but I just, yeah, I remember just going to uh, my school with St. Cyril's and there's one, um, I've been involved with the Oakland Boys and Girls Club for a number of years. And they have this uh, notion that when a person outside of your family takes an interest in your development, that's a very powerful influence. I mean, you're obviously going to have family members that are interested in your well-being. But when someone outside of your family takes a genuine and sincere interest in your development, it could be an extremely powerful motivator. And for me, that individual was Sister Marcella. And I mean, I, I've known her. I mean, I've stayed in touch with her over the years, even when we were back at HBS. And post-HBS, I'd go visit her, take my family, go visit her when she was retired. Uh, none. I mean, just this powerful uh, force of a person that was probably about five foot one, um, but just had su such moral authority. Um, even as an adult, when I think about her as a um, as an adult now, I mean, she was just an amazing, amazing person. I would say the thing about Sister Marcella was that um, she really believed in me. I mean, I I'd say, and it was a group of friends I went to school with. You know, we all thought uh, we were Sister Marcella's favorite. Um, <laughs> although I truly was the favorite of Sister Marcella. Um, but, you know, this was a person that in her eyes, I could do no wrong and that my life represented um, just a, an amazing set of possibilities. Um, and I, I can't think of any other person, again, outside of my family, even probably even more so than my family, um, who uh, just a person that believed in me. And you could just see it the way she would look at me is just like, 
she could look at me and just say, I, I think you are going to go off and do super amazing things. And n- none of us knew what that would be or clue, but we just knew that we were loved and supported and people thought the best or saw the best in us, I guess I would say. And I think I got a decent, you know, education as well. Cause you know, you're studying, you know, you're studying theologians and the like. And I think that set me up pretty well for college. Cause I, you know, kind of been exposed to, you know, you know, the great, you know, Catholic thinkers and this too, um, for many of your viewers probably wouldn't be relevant, but um, this was an amazing time when I was going to school where the whole Vatican II thing was going on, where the whole kind of Catholic um, uh, faith was uh, undergoing almost a, the same type of civil rights revolution, but from a, uh, from a, a church uh, point of view where they were kind of, you know, we're going to kind of get away from the superstructure top down thing to more of a kind of a liberated theology and, you know, kind of moving away from, you know, uh, Latin mass to like, let's like, why would we have uh, mass in a dead language that nobody can understand? Do, do, we, do we kind of think it's a good idea to have mass in English? Um, but anyway, I mean, so all those things were just kind of really going on. And I just remember, um, you know, reading a lot. Um, uh, I was playing a lot of chess, too, because this was an amazing time to when um, Bobby Fischer was kind of taking the world on uh, in chess. And so that was a game that was, you know, didn't cost a lot, easy to play. And I remember a few summers when I was in elementary school, literally playing chess like eight hours a day. Wow. Because I couldn't go very far because I had to babysit my younger sister at the time. And so um, my mom was okay with uh, my cross the street neighbor, Joe Vieira, coming across the street. Um, He couldn't come in the house. But we could literally be out on the front porch and play chess. And we would play chess from like, I mean, literally sun up, I mean, to sundown. And then on the weekends, we go to the library and we try to up each other's game because we'd be trying to secretly check out books on chess to develop kind of new strategy. This is before the internet. There's this thing called the library <laughs> yeah. you have to physically go to and <laughs> check books out. But I mean, so that was, that was all very powerful and interesting. And then I would say um, when uh, just as I was graduating high school, another interesting person um, uh, accidentally came in uh, to my life, uh, actually HBS uh, and Harvard law school graduate, uh, Barry Lawson Williams, uh, which is someone you guys should definitely, do you know Barry? I do. Okay. Oh, well, so, okay so. Sounds, sounds like we have another guest for the end. Yeah, you should definitely get uh, Barry. And um, uh, Barry wasn't as directly involved as Sister Marcella, but he took enough interest in me and he wouldn't remember this, although I try to remind him of this all the time. He's maybe getting up in age. He forgets easily or doesn't like to be embarrassed. But for whatever reason, one day he invited me. I was in still high school at the time. And he invited me to uh, go have lunch with him. And at the time, he was a VP at Bechtel. And I'm from Oakland. And for people that don't know the Bay Area, I mean, like people say Oakland, San Francisco. I mean, in the 70s, let me tell you something. You know, Oakland is like, I mean, San Francisco is on the other side of the world. I mean, it's just like, I mean, you go there every now and then. I mean, you know, for us, it's like what? What business would my family have in San Francisco? Not much, because we were we were not we were pretty poor, actually. So, but anyway, for whatever reason, uh, Barry invited me over to San Francisco, and I think Bart had just gotten going away. Somehow, I, between Bart and the bus, I ended up getting over there, and um, I will never forget this. I just remember checking in at the lobby and like going up this elevator up like this huge Bechtel building. And the thing that struck me was when I get off on his floor and he's at the elevator to meet me 
And as we're walking from kind of the lobby area back to his office, and his office had this amazing view of the bay and everything, I've never seen so many white people be deferential <laughs> to a black man. I mean, it's just, you just, you just don't, you, I mean, right. you never saw anything like this. I mean, and he, of course he was suited and booted in the whole nine yards. Yeah. And he's like, oh yes, oh, Mr. Williams. Yes, can we, you know, can Mr. Williams, da, da, da. I mean, it had to be, it's almost like he staged it. It's like a movie. I mean, it wasn't. I mean, that's just the way it was. But to me, I've never, I just, you know what I mean? I just never yeah, seen it. I've never seen anything like that. I was like, I was like, and I was just like, I don't know what you do. I have no idea what you do, but I think I want to do something like that. I don't know what it is that you do, but I like, I, I like you, you were like working in San Francisco and I like the view that you have. And I like people like calling you Mr. Williams. You are demystifying success. This is the exact reason we are running this podcast. Okay. All right. Brilliant. Oh, Excellent. Yeah, because he suddenly like, wow, some he became very visible to you. One time just and it took that one time and it's like, oh, okay, this is this is the art of the possible. This this can happen. Maybe it won't happen, but I can see it ha it can happen. It did happen for him. Maybe it can happen for me. So. so just actually just just spend a minute on that, because uh, you, you started the call saying that you love this idea, even though you work for big companies, this idea of becoming a serial entrepreneur was very attractive to you. So given all the stories about lack of access to capital, particularly for black entrepreneurs, what led you down that path and how did you how did you go about raising capital for ShotSpotter? Yeah, so I think um, that. I guess brings me back to um, applying to Harvard Business School. So I'd worked at IBM, very successful. I would never, ever thought about leaving IBM. Uh, and then Boeing, Boeing was my client uh, when I worked at IBM. And then I got the notion, working at IBM, we had this thing called the president's class where, you know, they fly uh, high potential candidates uh, back to Boston. And there was this two-week class taught by Harvard Business School professors, including in my case at this particular time, it was Sam Hayes who was one of the professors. And I remember, uh, and I was actually in that class with Donna Stoddard, who you may or may not remember. I had her. Okay, yeah, so Donna and I both worked at IBM. We we're both in the president's class. Probably. And at the time we both said, hey, we're gonna go apply to, to Harvard Business School. She ended up doing it and I ended up not doing it right away, but a few years later, but it just made a big impression on me. But anyway, I did apply and um, uh, was uh, fortunate enough to be admitted, but part of the admissions process was to be uh, interviewed by a Harvard alum in Seattle at the time, and his name was Artie Burke, uh, class of 63, the famous class of 63. And I remember talking to him because I, I didn't never consider myself to be a serial entrepreneur, but in talking to him in the whole interview process, that was his whole life was just being an entrepreneur. And I mean, almost like the Barry Williams in a different way is like, oh, I, there's a there's a life of like not having to be a part of a big blue blanket with security. Um, you know, at the time, IBM was very secure. It's very different now. But at the time, it was like, you know, lifetime employment practices and policies and the like. Um, and the notion of like getting out of my own and being an entrepreneur was very strange. So um, already kind of exposed me that a little bit. And then getting to Harvard Business School and meeting brothers like yourself, okay, it became very clear that, okay, you know, if you have a, uh, a reputation and a uh, credible reputation and, you know, producing high quality work combined with a Harvard Business School degree, 
it, there's there's not a lot of risk to be an entrepreneur. I mean, if if you fail, I mean, it's not really failing um, in my mind. It's like a it's a it's a uh, it's a growth path. I mean, you're learning something from it. You're growing. You're learning, and you know, there's no such thing as a failure. So. Um, that began to kind of open up the aperture, I would say, in that regard. So I felt I still needed to get a little bit more kind of post-Harvard Business School. I wasn't completely confident that just the IBM experience and the HBS degree was enough. So then I felt like, okay, I need to get kind of one more thing. Yep. And that thing for me was kind of going deeper in finance and just seeing more companies and, you know, the raising capital and, you know, uh, going public and, you know, doing M&A advisory work. So, but I knew I wasn't going to be there for like very long. I mean, I was just like, I, I think I can get what I need to get out of here in two to three years. And it just worked perfectly according to plan. So I said, okay, like with that, you know, IBM, Harvard Business School, Goldman Sachs, I mean, I, there's, I'm going to be employable, uh, hopefully. And even if I run into an entrepreneurial situation right. where um, it doesn't completely work out, you know, I'll just go do the do the next thing, which then kind of leads me to um, ShotSpotter. I had when I was a again, the company was founded um, already by Dr. Bob Schoen, and I had gotten the call. I'd been around for about ten or so years, um, and I had gotten the call because I had been the CEO of a company called Guardian Edge, which was acquired by Symantec in a fairly high-profile acquisition. So my name kind of popped up on um, a radar screen for headhunters. And uh, one headhunter was doing a headhunter uh, search for ShotSpotter. And living in Oakland, I was vaguely familiar with the technology. Some of my friends worked on Ape, uh, Oakland PD. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. I, I think um, uh, Guardian Edge worked out extremely well for me, along with some other things that I've been fortunate enough to be a part of, where I wasn't even sure exactly if I was going to go back to work or just, you know, just do something more philanthropically or whatever. But I, I was curious enough, just being curious. I said, let me go check this out because I hear a little bit about this in Oakland. And I'll never forget, I went down to uh, the company and met uh, Dr. Bob and uh, the team and they're doing just their passion around, you know, policing or whatever, but it was a broken company. And I was like, yeah, this is really interesting. You guys are trying to do something powerful. I'm not sure you're going about it the right way. But I, I want to help you if I can. So what? But I don't want to join because I what I did I wasn't looking for a job, and so for about three months I was kind of going down and spending time. We kind of started kind of one day a week, then one day a week became two days a week. <laughs> right. And like three, I said, man, you guys going to have to you guys going to have to pay me now. I was like, <laughs> I'm kind of I'm doing work here, and uh, I got sufficiently um, excited about the work. And I think the thing that really did it for me was going to a, um, a noble conference, which is National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives, and really kind of talking with a number of folks in the organization around their challenges of dealing with urban gun violence. And I said, you know, this is something I just have to, I have to do. And I, I, by then I developed a, a, a business model pivot that I thought could help the company be successful, which is kind of converting from a uh, a premise-based CapEx high-priced perpetual software license model, heavy lift, uh, which is where the company had uh, been for the past 10 years, to some success, basically selling to early adopter agencies. But I could see a window of um, selling to more of the unwashed masses of police departments that maybe didn't have the budgets that a Boston or San Francisco had if the board and investors would be willing to support 
a business model to a managed services subscription-based business model mm. and being long-term greedy as opposed to short-term greedy. And by long-term greedy, I mean, you know, we're just going to charge an annual subscription fee, super reduced price, get people in. We were pretty confident, or I was pretty confident at the time that if we got people in, they start using the technology, seeing the results, there's no way they can go back. They can't, you know, once you go to see, you can't go unsee. And so the, the board investors uh, backed that uh, vision and uh, I joined the company. By then it was, uh, when we first started talking, it was uh, May, 2010. I think I formally joined like in September or something like that. And then we've been off to the races uh, ever since. Um, we we're about 25 or so customers or cities, police departments when I joined, we're over hundred today. Wow. Um, large cities, medium-sized cities, small cities. Uh, we took the public, we took the company public in, uh, 2017, uh, which is a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, SSTI and I'm not promoting uh, stock or anything like that because I don't want to get in trouble with the SEC, but, um, uh, we are, um, to my knowledge, I think we are, uh, one of the few, African-American-led CEO um, uh, public companies uh, where the, the CEO actually took the company public as opposed to joining the company as a CEO that was already public. So we're really, really proud of that. And we've built an amazing team. I think we're doing really important uh, work. There's a lot more work that needs to be done, but it's uh, been quite a journey. Incredible. Ralph, it's amazing. So maybe, maybe uh, our last question then. Um, as you know, the originating idea be behind the Invisible Men 30 years ago is when Nike and I and other uh, fellow uh, Harvard Graduate School men created a film all about this imaginary 16-year-old kid, Daryl, black kid living up, growing up in forgotten USA, this imaginary urban city. And we were providing advice to Daryl about how to navigate the world and where he could live, lead his life on his own terms. So given all the craziness in the world right now, any words that you would share with our Daryl and the Daryls like him across the country? Yeah, ab absolutely. I'd say, Daryl, I mean, we believe in you. We believe in you. And we know that um, you can do amazing things. Make, make good choices, defer gratification as much as you can, uh, be long-term greedy as much as you can, um, continue to be uh, curious about the world. And, but most importantly, um, we, we believe in you and just kind of keep at it and keep, keep positive. Don't ever give up, be persistent. Excellent. Well, thank you, Ralph. That was powerful and amazing and congratulations, man. Yeah, my brother, I just want to say, I, I am so proud of you and your journey. We didn't even get to talk about you as a father but I know you're doing remarkable things there as well. And so you've inspired me today as well. I got a, I got a little more work. You know, the one thing I remember about you is you, the second year, I think you graduated with honors from Harvard Business School. I never forgot that because I didn't. Um, but there's always room for improvement. But I'm, I'm just super proud of you and thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Good seeing you both. And uh, shout out to both of you as well. I know you're doing some amazing things with your family. Uh, we've got uh, four ourselves. So uh, let's bring up this next generation, not only of our own kids, but other kids as well. I, I hope there's some young people who will get an opportunity to uh, encounter you guys and the work that you do. I think it's really important. So thank you so much again for having me. Really appreciate it. And let's stay in touch. Yes. For sure. 100%. 100%. Absolutely. 
Thank you for watching another episode of The Invisible Men. You can find other episodes at the AEI podcast channel on YouTube or the website invisible.men or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.